We know you're busy. Bills to pay, mouths to feed, and the man needs another favor. So just in case you missed what happened on the fan today, we got your back. And even if you did hear it live, you probably need to hear it again. Here you go, all in one place and in just one hour. The best of the best from today on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. This is Instant Replay. Play, play. Today on Query and Company. My name is Jake Query. Jimmy Cook, the other voice you hear on this program. Eddie Garrison flying controls for us and just dialed up Lance Zerline, who is an NFL Network analyst. Of course, the NFL Network is going to provide more than 50 hours of live combine coverage coming up and starting on Tuesday from here in Indianapolis. That time of year again, and the NFL Network is where you will be able to visually see what we will be talking about on this radio station, and that is all of the coverage in terms of the Combine. And Lance, I will give you the biggest softball of all time because of my appreciation of you joining us, and that is this. The biggest storyline of the Combine is going to be what? Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's just going to be quarterbacks. It's, it's never – I don't think there's a single – you know, it's going to be, frankly, one, two, three. It's going to be Caleb Williams, Drake May, and Jaden Daniels and how those guys shake out. I don't think – I mean, look, if Drake May just kills it or if Jaden Daniels kills it and Caleb doesn't look very good, which is hard when you're on air, but it's happened before, um, it could generate a lot more conversation because media members love to do nothing more than create a narrative that the number one pick is unsettled. So I do think that's going to be one of the, the narratives at the combine that, that develops is, is will the Bears trade the number one pick? Is it oh, is there now competition for the number one pick? I think that's that's really what it's going to be. I think that's that's it. And it's also going to be when, when we walk out of there, it's going to be Malik Neighbors because Malik Neighbors is about to test great, and there's going to be more conversation about him potentially going ahead of Marvin Harrison Jr. Really? Because, you know, here, Lance, as you know, here in Indianapolis, everybody had the brilliant idea of like, the Colts need to just trade up and get Marvin Harrison Jr. right now because Marvin Harrison played for the Colts. Right. But um, Harrison Jr., though, still we're talking what, probably at worst top six, ten? No, I'd say at worst top five. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'd be shocked if he got past four, honestly. Um, I think there are going to be some teams that have neighbors ahead of, um, ahead of, uh, Marvin Harrison Jr., but it wouldn't be by much. I mean, it's just you just maybe prefer the speed and, you know, the elite speed and playmaking potential of neighbors over the polish and well-rounded game of Marvin Harrison Jr. It's, it would just be one of those things where you're just kind of, you know, you like this one better or this one better, and it's it's in the same class. So um, I, I don't think Marvin Harrison Jr. falls below four. I mean, I think he could be a Patriot, if not a Patriot, you know, I think he could be uh, uh, an Arizona Cardinal, either three or four. But worst case scenario, I couldn't see him, you know, falling below five, for example. The team, let me ask you this, Lance. Lance Zerline is our guest, and I'm going to fall right into what you were just talking about, right? Of like it's, you know, we start falling in love with potential narratives or that may never happen. But when you're looking at, for example, if you're Chicago and you're thinking, let's say Chicago does say, you know what, we're going to give this – time with Justin Fields and we'll, we'll we'll trade out of this for somebody that wants a quarterback 
the franchises that would be most likely that have the combination of assets and desire for a young quarterback to move into the front three where they, they are not currently right now would be which franchises? The front three? Well, yeah. I mean, in other words, if the, so of those three quarterbacks yeah, that you no, mentioned. I, know what you mean. Yeah. I, I didn't know if I should include – you know, I didn't know if you meant trying to get up for Kayla Williams. Because, Williams, see, I don't think the Bears are going to – you're going to have to really crush the Bears with an offer for them to move out of one, in my opinion. So I just don't see any way you you get ready to pay Justin Fields a second contract with the money that's going to be worth when he hasn't proven himself as a passer. And the ability to go back to a rookie contract is just is just going to be too strong. So I don't think there's any way the Bears get out of number one because I don't think anyone's going to pay what it takes to get to number one. But to get inside the top three for a quarterback, if we're not talking just Caleb Williams – um, I think I think the Giants have some desperation. I mean, I think it's going to be less about your. It's going to be less about draft capital this year because you can always fire up. You know, the the Browns fired in three first round picks, future first to the Houston Texans. So, and this will be the last year of those picks for the Texans. So you can use future first if you really want to. The whole key is you don't want to be too far away from the you know the drop. You don't want the drop to be too far because then the sliding scale of, of how much you have to give up goes way up. So I think when you look at the teams who might be interested, you know, the Minnesota Vikings obviously would come to mind. They're a top 10 team. Uh, the, the Giants at number six would obviously come to mind. And then, you know, I saw Mike Tannenbaum throw something out there that I thought was intriguing about Deshaun Watson to the, to the, he said, Hey, what about a, a trade with Deshaun Watson going to, the you know going to the the Giants and then the Giants send Daniel Jones and draft picks and all this and that, but you know you could also look the same way at the Cleveland Browns if they wanted to get out from under that contract and you wanted to see about you know jumping up there into Washington for example and saying hey why don't you guys take a look at, at Deshaun Watson potentially and so that's that's an example of something that could happen out of the blue with a, a quarterback that's established but I really don't think that Washington is going to want to at two and then I think New England will be open for business but I don't think Washington at two is really going to want to move back beyond you know maybe the top six or seven picks to be honest with you NFL Network's Lance Zerline is our guest Lance from different conversations with scouts those that cover the league we know that the combine itself when it begins next week is a small piece in the larger profile of any prospect the, whether it's their game tape, whether it's their pro days, it's a good mix and blend of evaluating talent. From your perspective, though, in today's NFL, who has the most to gain from participating in the combine? Is it the prospects themselves? Is it the scouts, the franchises? Who has the most to gain next week? Um, well, I mean, I think I think it's I still think it's a, a healthy blend of both. You know, a lot a lot of people will look. You don't have to. There there are plenty of players who wouldn't have to work out in the combine and they'd still get drafted high. I shouldn't say plenty. There are some, but you better have really good football character because right off the bat, there's going to be a concern. There's going to be a concern. Is this guy a diva? What are we doing here? Is he just being run by his agent? Is he going to be a problem when we get him in the, uh, in the locker room? There's a lot more that goes into it than just, you know, what your, what your measurables are and what the numbers you post are. You want to ultimately, you want to have a room filled with guys who are, single-minded in their purpose of winning a championship. And it's easy to, to 
to derail that with players who are selfish or when it becomes a, a me versus we attitude. And so I think that, you know, for the scouts and, and the evaluators, I should say, obviously seeing these guys work out on the field, seeing their movement, seeing, you know, what, what some of the numbers post, because I know that there's that, that old stale line of underwear Olympics, but the reality is, yeah, some things don't matter as much as others. And ironically enough, the 40 yard dash is meaning less and less behind the scenes as teams get their hands on miles per hour on, you know, in terms of actual play speed uh, from games. But I can say that, man, there's so much that's important. There's so much with explosion numbers on broad jump and, and vertical leap to tell you something about, you know, the, the power in the hips. There's so much in terms of change of direction on field drills and, and with some of the, you know, with, with some of the, um, uh, testing the pro the the pro athletic the the shuttle run that they do there's there's things that really really do matter not to mention getting behind the scenes and talking to these guys getting the medical so i mean the combine of is of tremendous importance and it's not just to the the teams but to the players and i think if if the players ever you know every once in a while you'll hear this stuff the players should just you know should boycott and they should get paid to do this this is your job interview for a huge paycheck and an opportunity to take care of your family for the rest of your life. Don't screw it up with, with trying to squeeze the golden goose. This is just part of the process and should be, I think, viewed as such. You mentioned concerns if you're skipping the combine or not at the combine, and the intangibles of a player's character often matter a great deal in the grand scheme of things with talent evaluation. How often in your experience in, in covering this – is it a misevaluation because that that is I don't want to say a stereotype, but that's often if it's a wide receiver or something like that skipping the combine. Oh, is this guy have an ego problem? How often does that happen initially? But then the deeper you dive into the player, maybe it's just a one-off thing and, and not a cause for concern. Well, most guys don't skip the combine, so I mean we're kind of we're kind of just talking about something that doesn't. If you're talking about don't work out at the combine or skip, guys don't skip. The don't work out. Yeah, about, I apologize. Oh, yeah, not working out. Yeah. Okay. So no 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 that okay well well not working out is not the end of the world that, that's I want to make sure that we're clear on that guys who choose not to work out all they've done frankly is just they have just created more pressure at their pro day and uh, sometimes there's not going to be general managers many times there won't be general managers at certain pro days so you miss your chance to shine in front of uh, in front of a larger number of personnel from a particular team. So that's, that's concern number one. And if you don't do as well, you still have the pro day as your retest to fall back on. Um, no, not, not working out. It's not going to hurt you from a football character standpoint. Not at all. I, it's, it's a personal choice. They're not going to kill you on that. What I will say though, is that um, when it comes to evaluations on character and things like that, personal character, you have to remember that these, these scouts, these area scouts for the Colts, right? They'll go out to, to multiple locate they, they have their own areas and they're talking to coaches they're talking to strength coaches they're talking to uh people you wouldn't even believe uh to get as much intel on a player because in part they're they're you know they're private investigators where they have to uncover everything so that they can have the discussions in meetings so they know who these players are and they can work their way around certain topics you know they, they gather it over two and three years and then they address these issues with the players at meetings at the combine for example or at personal you know when they come in for their individual workouts so it's important that chris ballard and his staff for example know 
what the ticking time bombs are, know what the issues are, and some, but, but also likewise, know who the great characters are, know who the guys who really care about winning. And I know that Ballard more than anyone, it is, yeah, he loves traits, but man, he is really, really big in the football character. And he wants a certain type of guy in the building. And, you know, to do that, you got to know who they are. And that, that doesn't happen at the combine. That happens, you know, over a two and three year process with those area scouts who are digging in and going to the schools and getting as much intel and watching guys practice and reading the body language. It's, it's, a, it's an art form, frankly. Lance Zerline is our guest. His mock draft is available at NFL.com. He will be part of the 50 hours of essentially nonstop ubiquitous coverage from the Combine for the NFL Network. Lance, Indianapolis in round one is selecting 15th. It is my opinion that the Colts, and I think most Colts fans would say this, when you watched deep into the playoffs, the one thing the Colts, I think, could use is open space playmakers. I'm not saying those guys are a dime a dozen, but certainly even – you know they got a they got a crowded tight end room, but they don't have necessarily like open space yard after catch type tight ends. Do they have at fifteen? Are they going to have the choice of some guys that can help them in that area? Well, I mean, you're basically asking me a Brock Bowers question, and yes, I think fifteen Brock Bowers will be available for the Colts to consider. I don't care as much. People make a big deal about. Uh, when I, you know, I put Jatavion Sanders, a, a tight end from Texas, to San Francisco at 32, and in, in my first mock, and you know, 49ers fan, we got a bunch of tight ends. Do you have the right one? Do you have dudes? Right. I mean, you don't. It's you never worry about drafting a talented player into a position where you have a lot of players. Do you have players who do what he does? No, you do not. And I like Granson fine, but I mean, the fact is, and I like, you know, Mallory did a nice job last year is better than I expected. But the fact is he is rare run after catch stuff. He's basically like, a, it's like watching Mike Allstott with the ball in his hands um, after the catch. And so Brock Bowers is just a unique player. He's not, he doesn't really fit the height, weight, length, mold that Ballard likes but when you see him test he's going to run fast he's going to jump high for a tight end so he is going to match it there but he is a guy who helps you mismatch defenses and you make a good point in today's NFL you need to have weapons that do you need to have a variety of of weaponry to to go attack defenses and you know you have a, a ball winner with Pittman and we'll see what happens with Pittman you have a vertical with Pierce you need to have a guy who can who can really kill it in the middle of the field? And Daniel Jeremiah, when I did move the sticks with them, he kind of he kind of thought Brock Bowers is a combination of George Kittle and, and Dallas Clark from the Colts, the the old Colts days. And I think that's a pretty good comparison. And so, yeah, I think Bowers will be there because it's hard to slot uh, tight ends in the top 15, 16 picks. It's just really difficult these days. However. He is a guy who could be a special weapon for for Richardson. And, and you look historically, young quarterbacks have loved having good. Got to have that you know, safety good, net, right? Good tight ends. Yeah, you want to have that safety blanket, and that's what Brock Bowers can be. This draft, Lance Zerline, if you were a general manager that is in desperate need of a certain position that would be causing you to lose sleep because it just, quite frankly, is a year where that position is not very yeah. deep, that would be what? Well, I think it's linebacker. It's not a great linebacker draft. So if you want an inside linebacker, I mean, you're not going to find one in the first round. And then when it does pop up, you need to, you need to get – there's going to be maybe three or four you want to get your hands on. After that, I think it becomes real, real average, real fast. And 
I also think defensive tackle is going to be a tough one too because there's some talented guys, but there are some questions with some of those guys. So once I think the the top four to five go off the board, you know, it's going to be I think it's going to be a little trickier. Running back also, running back. There's some I think there's some average running backs in this draft. There's there's a few guys. Jonathan Brooks from Texas. He's coming up in ACL tear, but he's my my favorite running back, and I think he goes in the second. And then Jalen Wright from Tennessee is my second favorite, but. That's another one that, you know, luckily it's not viewed as, as an elite position that must be addressed early, and you can find runners all over the place. But uh, finding running backs is going to be one where it's probably best just to wait it out until late day two, early day three, and start looking at that point. Is there a position, Lance, in your opinion, that let's say – I mean, running back is is the, the first thought, right, that, that the, the position has just been devalued – but then all of a sudden you realize this year, you know, if you got a good running back, it can be a huge difference for you. But is there a position that seemingly has higher value than, say, it did 10 years ago? Well, I think tight end. Um, tight end is one because now tight ends are looked at as – and it was really happening then. It just wasn't – I don't think teams necessarily valued it as much if you really go back, Bill, Bill Belichick was trying to do the two tight end thing for a long time. He had figured out that from a matchup standpoint, it really made it hard to match up on players. And so, you know, he, he had a couple different players. I'm trying to remember in the, like around 2003, 2004 tight ends that he uh, targeted that, that didn't get it done. Then he found Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski. We know what happened with Hernandez. But, you know, from a football standpoint, he really did get it right with those two and it was causing major issues. And then we know that Gronk was just a, a monster. But when you have a really good pass-catching tight end, you look at Tony Gonzalez, you look at uh, Antonio Gates, you don't have to have great, great wide receivers. You look at Travis Kelsey. It doesn't turn – it really alters – you know, teams now look at that as, hey, wait a minute, we've got a great pass catcher. You can call him tight end if you want, but you've got a target, and you have a primary target. And so I think having a pass-catching tight end – who can also block is great. But when you have a guy that you know is a playmaker at tight end, I think it really changes things because as anyone in a fantasy football draft will tell you, once those top tight ends are gone, it's like it falls off the map. Well, because that's what's happening in the NFL too. If you have one, it's an enormous weapon that you have. And you don't find great tight ends typically in the fourth round, fifth round. You do find wide receivers that come out of nowhere in the second, third, fourth, fifth rounds that turn into really good starters and, you know, guys like Devontae Adams, he'll be a Hall of Famer one day. So um, I think that's the big difference is tight ends. If you have a, a, a really good class like you had last year, that can be something special. And that's why Bowers, to me, and Sanders, both of those guys from, from Texas, they have a chance to be really kind of special in the passing game. And after that, I mean, it just falls completely off. So I think tight end is one because of the matchup potential it gives you is one that you have to take a look at as being a little different now than maybe 10 years ago. Lance Zierlein of NFL Network is our guest. His most recent 1.0 mock draft for the 2024 campaign is up on NFL.com. And I know you alluded to this earlier, Lance, but when Jake asked the question regarding what they could do at 15 and Brock Bowers is the player that you highlighted in your 1.0. And I understand mocks are just exercises. We can't possibly simulate what's going to happen within three spots, let alone 15. But for the sake of the exercise, 
if Brock Bowers is taken before the Colts come around, you highlight like we've done on this show, receiver, cornerback, pass rush, O-line. There's a lot of areas where the Colts could choose to go. And when looking at Anthony Richardson having a de facto rookie season this year, if Bowers is off the board, where's the most likely area if you were managing the Colts you would go? I think probably um, it would either be rush, uh, defensive end. Well, it'd be okay. So it'd be. I'll give you targets specifically. Byron Murphy, Texas defensive tackle. If you let Grover walk, uh, Byron is going to be. Ballard's going to love him. I mean, this guy is pure lean mass, three down uh, player. Um, he has a chance to be really, really good. So I would say a defensive tackle like Byron Murphy. I would say a pass rusher like maybe, um, like maybe Dallas Turner from. Uh, uh, Dallas Turner, or maybe even Chop Robinson. That'd be a little early for Chop, but I, I also have a really high grade on Chop. And then I would say offensive tackles. The next one, guys like you know, long arm guys like uh, uh, Guyton out of Oklahoma and Amarius Mims. Uh, people aren't putting them as high in their dra- mock drafts right now. But there's going to be a run on tackles, so don't be shocked if those tackles start flying off the board inside the top 20. So those are guys that I think I would. Um, probably not wide receiver. Once you get outside of the top three wide receivers, I'm not really a fan of taking anyone there. You know, I'd love to see cornerback as an option there. I just don't know if the Colts will draft cornerback in the first. Lastly, Lance, and again, 50 hours worth of coverage on the NFL Network. Lance will be a part of that mock draft. Well, you guys NFL. are doing great com. at promoting this. I'll make sure and let Andrew Howard know. These guys are really good at promoting. <laughs> hey, man. I'm telling you that. Hey, listen, Lance. I mean, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, right? Yeah, I mean, we know how it goes, right? Hey, lastly, uh, there's interest of this just because of the local ties, obviously, with him playing at Indiana. Uh, and it was a great story over the course of the year. But Michael Penix, he slots mm-hmm. where? Like, what round are we looking at? I think we're maybe looking at uh, the earliest second and the latest uh, fourth. The only way he falls fourth is medicals. The medicals, you know, he's had an ACL tear in the same knee twice. He's had a shoulder issue. He's had shoulder injuries in both shoulders, although, you know, I talked to I talked to his agent. We were talking a little bit about that. And I, I don't know if one of the shoulder things is going to be as big a deal. But, um, I, you know, when you watch Penix, he's, he's really good. He was great. If you only watch him against Texas, you'd think he's the best quarterback that's come out of football in 10 years. Um, but then Michigan showed one of the areas that is kind of a weakness for him, and it's He's not a guy who throws well on the move. When you move his feet, he is his his completion percentage plummets, and I think he has to be in rhythm. He's he's operated in a very quarterback friendly uh, system, but he also did well to to bolster the system. So he he can throw the intermediate throws. He's got a a whip a whip quick uh, release. He's got plenty of, of power in that arm, but he needs to get more consistent. Uh, I think throwing with touch underneath and also uh, with, with being able to operate outside of the pocket. In today's NFL, they'll, chase, they'll do whatever they have to to chip. If they think that's your weakness, they'll chase you out, and you're going to have to prove you can throw on the move and not just throw it away or not panic and throw it near somebody's feet. So I think with Penix, the good is really good, but the areas of concern will cause them to, to fall into the second, and the injury stuff is what could cause them to fall below there. So I think he ends up being the uh, – I think he probably ends up being the, what, fifth quarterback off the board. So he's the Hendon Hooker of this year's draft, right? Yeah, I would say so, although I would – yeah, I like Hendon Hooker coming out. But Penix, to me, has is a little more scheme independent. With Hooker, you didn't know how he would do outside of tennis as Josh Heupel's offense. 
with Penix, I see him make throws. Like, I know Penix can make throws. So I have more faith uh, in Penix, even though Hendon Hooker was that, you know, was that guy coming off the ACL tear and was a legit dual threat quarterback. Penix is not a runner. So that's one thing that kind of works against him right now. Lance, all we ask is that when you come to Indianapolis for the combine, for part of the coverage, that you spend a lot of money here. That's it, right? <laughs> is that all? That's all we I'll ask. Make yeah. sure my per diem goes to use. Don't That's, worry. <laughs> go to go to the restaurants, have a couple beers, enjoy it, and soak in the I city. Usually do. All right. I usually do. Lance, we appreciate it, man. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right, Lance Zerline again, NFL.com, where he has his mock draft, and he does have the Colts 15th right now, going with Bowers out of Georgia. It's the best of the best from today's broadcast lineup. Instant replay continues in a moment on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. This is Instant Replay. This morning on the Wake Up Call with KB and Andy. Jeremiah Johnson joining us, JJ Bally's Sports Indiana. Uh, Jeremiah, good morning. We appreciate you joining us. Before we dive into all-star break stuff, and I want to get your thoughts, obviously, being around all the festivities this weekend, KB and I were just mentioning this, that right now the odds of the Pacers making the playoffs, not, you know, the top eight seeds, okay, not just the play-in, but actually making the playoff rounds is over 89, what was it, 89.9%. What do you think of that number? Those odds, obviously, pretty good for the Pacers. First, I'd like to say it's an honor to be a guest on the Rick Carlisle Show. Happy to be uh, (laughs) joining you guys this morning. Second qualifier I'll make is that uh, as a team employee, I'm not allowed to, uh, to speak to odds specifically. Uh, but I'll just say that uh, the Pacers are in a good position now. And when the season started, I still thought that the playoffs were a goal for the team. And that was something they would shoot for, not just to be at the play-in tournament, but to be in the real playoffs. And right now, I mean, it's basically it, there are some tiers in the Eastern Conference. And you can clearly see the top team is Boston. Then two through five is Another tier, and, and right now it's it's Pacers, Heat, and Magic in six, seven, and eight. And if you're seventh or eighth, you still have some work to do. So, uh, if you're seventh or eighth, you're not guaranteed to be a playoff team, but you have a very good chance compared to if you're ninth or tenth. But I think this team is shooting on a, a goal towards being top six and not having to to deal with the play-in tournament. So, I like their chances. Health will be a big determining factor over the final third of the season, and, and that's another thing that's kind of worth pointing out. It's not the halfway point of the season. Two-thirds of the season already in the books, uh, less than one-third left. And so every game from this point forward is really important. I do want to get to that health, but I must acknowledge I will never forget the glare I got from Jeremiah Johnson as I'm going up the escalator the other night after the Warriors game. Uh, Probably a a show you weren't looking forward to too, too much, J.J., after that home effort in the old loft there. But I did yell down to Jeremiah from the escalator, um, shout out to the Rick Carlisle radio show there. And let's just say JJ didn't smile too much at me. So JJ, I apologize for that. But you guys shook hands, right? The All-Star well, we weekend, you guys made we up? We did. Okay. Shook hands, exchanged some texts. Well, I'd heard it for two straight days every time I tuned in, whether it was your show or you calling in another show or someone telling me they heard you talking about a show. And then, uh, you know, that wasn't the most pleasant game to watch. 
And I don't always hear everything that is yelled <laughs> from the fans on the escalator, but that just happened to be a moment where uh, the uh, the intercom in the entry pavilion happened to be a little bit lower. I did look up and see you. Hey, there, there, was, no, there was no ill will intended by that look. Oh, I love it. I love it. Jeremiah Johnson, obviously from Valley Sports, joining us here. Pacers back in action tomorrow night as they return from the All-Star break. I do want to ask All-Star related questions, but let's start here. Uh, Aaron Neesmith Limited, was that the Rick Carlisle update after their uh, return to practice yesterday? Yeah, uh, full disclosure, I didn't go down to practice last night, decided to uh, have another day off of the All-Star break, went to the Zionsville Cathedral game, but um, I listened to him on uh, the the wake-up call with KB and Andy and pretty much what he said on that show uh, matched what he said after practice yesterday. And the, the fact that Aaron Neesmith was there Put up a few shots. Uh, I'm not sure how much he participated. It, it was one of those practices that you often see after the All-Star break where you want to get guys in, get some guys to work up a little bit of a sweat for those that hadn't touched a basketball for a few days. So we'll see what happens today. Um, but it does appear as though it's a lot better than you feared when he left the court in Toronto. JJ, I mean, this is no slight to Pascal Siakam, maybe even Miles Turner. I think Aaron Neesmith is the second most indispensable player on this team. Like, I, I think he gives you that type of presence on both ends of the floor. I know you were there in Toronto the night he got hurt. To me, you could just watch the first, like, 90 seconds of that second half right before he got hurt and saw everything that he does for this team. He hit a three on uh, the offensive end of the floor to start the second half. Boom, comes down the other end, helps side defense two different times, forces a stop. I think he tried to take a charge, if I'm not mistaken, one of those times. And then he comes down, he drives the lane, tries to dunk it, and it should have been a foul. And that's when he got hurt. I, to me, he's that valuable. I know contractually there's other guys, other guys score more. To me, he's the second most indispensable player on this team. Because of what he's done with his three-point shooting, you, you saw last year someone that would bring the energy, the intensity, he would crash the glass, he would accept defensive assignments. But to do that and then be one of the best three-point shooters in the NBA, I don't think that I would argue with. You know, And it depends on the game and the situation. But the other thing you'd have to consider is, is what's behind him. If Miles Turner misses a game, you do have Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith that in spot minutes can – fill that role they don't have a lot of three and d wings with experience on this team and so you never know you never uh doubt what he'll bring you from an intensity level and and you mentioned everything that he does and you can see it every single game so i wouldn't argue with you and and that's why the health question it's not just him but he is a big part of that that final third of the season and where this team can go he needs to be healthy Jeremiah Johnson with us here, uh, talking some Pacers with him on the Payless Liquors Hotline. KB, this is for you. We haven't talked too much about this. If he doesn't play tonight, or if Neesmith does miss a couple games, what do you think? What do we think Carlisle does there, starting rotation wise? Uh, I know there's a lot of injuries, but I mean there have been injuries, but now I kind of feel like it may be just him. We'll see what happens with Jalen. What do we think, J- uh, Jeremiah? What do you what do you think he does with that starting lineup if Neesmith is out tomorrow night? It might depend on who you're playing and whether that team has a real talented wing scorer. Um, and, and you look, you basically have in your second unit, Benedict Matherin, Ben Shepard, Doug McDermott, guys that can play the two or the three a little bit. And so my, my initial thought would be that Benedict Matherin would get that opportunity and you would give him that, that challenge of stepping up and guarding someone of that level. Or maybe it's Andrew Nemhard that guards the wing and, and you have Benedict Matherin in the backcourt. 
Uh, it, we'll see. Doug McDermott has barely even had a chance to practice, but he does have that experience, and that would be something that, depending on who you're playing, maybe you could throw him into the mix. But, again, that's why I said that Aaron Neesmith is so important. Yep. And, and the other option, and this is something that we might see over this next month or two, remember that Phoenix game when, when Jairus Walker played really well and Rick Carlisle mentioned that you saw that he could play some three and not just some four? Who knows? Maybe it's a, it's an opportunity. Maybe if not with the starting group, but you see Jairus Walker play some three because it does. You know, you've got Obi Toppin who really is a four, and he's giving you really good backup minutes. And if you have an issue with Pascal Siakam, you could play Obi Toppin there. But the three position is one that's a little bit of a question mark right now. So who knows? Jairus Walker could get into the mix as well. But Ben Shepard's play in Toronto might have vaulted him up the list. Maybe I should move him higher in, in my answer here because he, he knocked down shots. He made a big stop. Maybe he gets that opportunity as well. It, there are some options, and there are a lot of things to consider when Rick Carlisle's making that decision. Yeah, big fourth-quarter moments from Ben Shepard, certainly, the last time the Pacers played a week ago tonight. Again, Jeremiah Johnson is with us here from Bally Sports. 7 o'clock tip, it'll be the Pacers and Pistons. Are we going to get a Benedict Mather and Jaden Ivey camera watch? Tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm fascinated. As if we didn't have enough already to talk about with everything that happened with All Star Weekend, the first game out of the break, it's the Jaden Ivey Benedict Mather and rivalry. And I wasn't actually surprised. I I was a little surprised you saw that intensity in that game because it's a, it's an All Star game. It's the Rising Stars game, and you saw Benedict Mather and smiling. But I didn't see too many smiles from Jaden Ivey and those two players. Every time they've played against each other, and it's probably been now you know, four or five times in the NBA last season and this season, I think maybe one of them might have been hurt one or two of the times. But it, there hasn't been a lot of love lost. And I remember one question uh, to Benning Mather either before they were get set to play each other just because they went through the pre-draft process together and they were drafted right next to each other. I think I asked him at one point if he had any, you know, developed a relationship with Jaden Ivey. He just kind of looked at me and said, Nah, not really. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know. I am interested to see Central Division. It's what I love Apple about and... him, frankly. What's that? It's what I love about him. Like, it, yeah. it just, you'd rather have to rein that in than create it. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely not someone that's going to go and handshake and, and hug every member of the opposing team. If he knows someone, he'll go say hi to them after a game. But if not, he's gonna get he's gonna get off the court pretty quickly unless he has some post game interview responsibility. So I don't know if this is exactly what he said, but I thought he's like, no, we're not friends. <laughs> and we saw that on on Friday night. Although he was smiling, and I did enjoy seeing some of Benedict Matherin's personality on Friday night. Uh, some of the smiles, it's him smiling, and sometimes the smile is menacing. Because I was going to say, it had like a yeah, Batman Joker yeah, feel to I, it I kind of feel like Matherin will tell Ivy or anybody, bleep off, but will be smiling <laughs> while he's doing so. Uh, Jeremiah Johnson with us from Bally's here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Uh, uh, Wednesday, almost at a Thursday on the fan. Matherin himself, you know, was, you know, last week we, we had Carlisle on, and he was like, I'm worried about the health of uh, Benedict Matherin, had kind of what the knee, the leg, injury, uh, the illness that was going through the team. They needed to get him healthy. And boy, Jeremiah, he looked healthy this past weekend. He is such a big deal for this team finishing this season strong and doing something in the postseason. If you ask me, what are you watching these final 26 games is now that he's healthy, what can Matherin do with Buddy Heald out of the way? To me, that's the number one question that I have. 
It is a it is a big question. It's something to watch, and I'll continue to say something that I've said over the last year and a half is that don't judge Benedict Matherin over one quarter or even one game. He still is going to have his ups and downs moving forward, but he's yet to really be fully healthy since the the Buddy Heel trade, and that was something that people were watching. How would he um, embrace a bigger role, take a bigger responsibility? I don't know that it matters at all if he starts or comes off the bench. If he's healthy and playing well and he comes off the bench, he's likely to be on the court in the fourth quarter. Rick Carlisle goes with the players that will succeed in, in those situations, and uh, it sounds a little cliche, goes with a hot hand. So Benedict Matherin will have his good moments. He'll have maybe an off game because he's a second-year player. But I am going to be watching that, and in that second unit right now, when you don't have Buddy healed, you really need him to provide some scoring punch because think about November, December, early January, when this team was having a lot of success consistently, every single night you look down at the end of the game and the second unit was outscoring the opposition by 15 to 20 points. Now, I'm not saying that's required because I think your starting group is a little bit better right now just by simply having Pascal Siakam and having Aaron Neesmith play so well. But you do have to come in you have to see that group come into the game and at least keep things even. And if you can get an advantage when those guys are on the court, even better. And Benedict Mather gives you the best chance to do that. So I'll be watching as well. Uh, even though he was busy All-Star weekend, I think it was a little bit of a break for him. As you noted, he looked pretty healthy on Friday and Saturday night. But the biggest thing was I, I saw all those smiles. So to me, he'll be rested and ready. And, and he'll be definitely someone to watch over the next few weeks. Again, Jeremiah Johnson, coverage for the crew over there at Bally going to begin tomorrow night, 6.30. The Pacers back in action. They are a heavy favorite in this one here out of the break. All right, JJ, I am pitching. I don't know if I'm going to save the world here with this idea, but I'm going to pitch two ideas for the All-Star game, okay? Let's get back to the Elam ending. I like that. I think it's a little bit more of a competitive fourth quarter. And I'm going to pitch NBA versus World. My world team is this, and those have asked about Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid is, uh, I, he could have opted to play for, I think it was Cameroon, France, or the U.S., and he said he'll play for the U.S. in the Olympics. So I'm taking Embiid off the world team. My starting lineup, Luka, the Joker, Giannis, Jamal Murray, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. My bench unit, God, we're really big coming off the bench here. <laughs> Webb and Yama, Sabonis, Siakam, Lori Markkinen, Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert, and OG Ananobi. A few guards that just missed it for me. Lou Dort. I need guards, really. Matherin, Franz Wagner. What do you think about my NBA versus world idea to try to revive Sunday night? As long as you talk to all those players and they will determine that winning that game and representing the world, not just their country, is, is an important factor. Um, I'm on board. I think it would be a good show. It's going to be tough to pick. I'm worried about that now that you said that out loud because I watched Luca and Joker the other <laughs> night and it looked like me out there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I was a part of uh, Luca's post game interview and uh, he put about as much effort into that as he did it during the game. He wanted to get out of Dodge as quickly as he could. Um, I really think they all have to come to some consensus and I'm a little disappointed it didn't happen this year because you knew that they weren't happy with the show they put on in Utah. And I thought a guy like Giannis or maybe even LeBron would have gotten everybody together and said, let's do things just a little bit differently. And and it was somewhat the same. 
one of the things you'll have to say, and this hasn't been said a whole lot, is, I mean, the shot making, the way those guys can knock down those shots, you've got to bring – you might think you were playing better defense. I watched early on, and I felt like there were some guys that were down in a stance really trying. And even though they tried, those shots were going in. So at some point, they just sort of – um, moved on with uh, back to reverted back to all star basketball. So I think they went into the game with the right intentions, but then it just became too easy to just marvel at the offensive side and not not play defense. I, I'm you know I heard I think I heard Andy yesterday criticizing the Major League Baseball All Star Game and the home the home field advantage. I may be in the minority here. Oh boy, but that that added something to me because there is something I don't that disagree with that any team. And it's not that big of a deal. I mean, you can win a series whether it's it's 2-3-2, two, two, whether you're the team that has the three or that has the two. But every player that's on a team is, is a team that, at least at the midway point of the season, thinks, I want to be in the NBA Finals. And if there's a chance that the home court advantage can help me, maybe it adds a little to it. I thought those baseball games, those baseball all-star games, when they did that, I thought it added just a little bit. I don't see why you wouldn't try something like that. And the other thing that is tough from an aesthetic standpoint, you saw the money matter in the in-season tournament. Those games were going to be still a big deal because they counted for the regular season. They were part of the schedule. Maybe you figure out some way where there's some financial incentive and you match a charity aspect of it to where um, it gets their attention. So I, I don't know. that Someone above my pay grade is going to have to have some of those discussions. But I don't want to see it go the way of, you know, the flag football of the Pro Bowl. Because I didn't – I don't even know that I've even cared one bit about that over the last few years. I thought All-Star Saturday Night was really good, but you still need to have a basketball game to bring all these people into town and, and to make it a full event. So hopefully they can work on things. USA versus the world, I'm not against that as well. Again, as long as everybody's buying it and everybody's focused on playing a little bit – different style of game then you could go that route JJ I'll add one more thing and I brought up Luka and and Jokic and them not giving really any effort at all Sunday night um, I shared this story earlier I was actually listening to Micah Shrewsbury yesterday because I'm a Notre Dame basketball nerd and he shared a story about when he coached with Brad Stevens in 2017 in the all-star game it was Giannis's first all-star game and the West is beating the East, so Brad Stevens and Michael Shrewsbury and that staff are losing, and I say that in quotes, at, at, at halftime. And Giannis looks around the locker room, and Michael Shrewsbury said, all of a sudden he chimes in and goes, hey, is this where we start trying? <laughs> and it, it, it was kind of one of those moments where it's like, and now Giannis is in this boat, to be fair. But now, right. like, if your top guys set the tone, I think the guys underneath them will follow. It, it wasn't much, but I thought like when Paulo Boncaro and Scotty Barnes got in the game for their first run on Sunday night, they were even at a little bit of an upper tick just because like they weren't used to, okay, exactly where am I supposed to fall in the speed limit lane here? And I just think that's so important of, you know, when these guys get together in the summer and they go to the Drew League or they go to wherever and they play a pickup game and it has more intensity than Sunday night in the All-Star game, Why? Well, it's because the top guys are setting the tone. And I think if the top guys, for whatever reason, if it's financial, financial, if it's USA versus world, whatever, if they start to set a higher tone, then I think that's really the only main way we see an uptick in it. That is definitely where it starts. And that's why I think Adam Silver was so disappointed is he's a, he's a player's commissioner. He's given in a lot over his time 
to making things better for the players. And I thought he, I mean, he, I think he felt like he had the leadership on his side where they all agreed it needed to be a little bit better. And then the product on the court didn't match what he thought would happen. You bring up a good point in the coaching staff. It, it starts with the, the top players, but who has a harder job than those coaches? Because they don't, they know one way to coach. This isn't what they would want. However, you can't sit there and yell at a player before the game or spend a lot of time putting in offensive sets or, or coming up with some defensive adjustments if everyone's going to laugh at you. And you don't want to do that either because, who knows, you may want to try to coach one of these players at some point. So this is the one game where the coaches aren't really – they don't have that much power. They're kind of just sitting there. And I even asked Chris Finch after the game, I said, you've got like a four- or five-minute timeout, it seems – and you're standing there with your coaches. What are you guys talking about while while the players are on the bench? And, and you know, he's like, oh, well, we'll try to set up a play for somebody here or there, but there's not a whole lot you can you can do. So um, I feel for those guys as well, and it's, it's it, that's an interesting story from Micah and, and Brad. We'll see what happens. I know they'll try to make some adjustments, and I'll be interested to see what those are. Jeremiah Johnson with us here from Bally's on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Last one for me. Uh, JJ, I mean, I don't know. What was your favorite thing uh, over the weekend? Festivities on Thursday and then obviously Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. What stood out to you being uh, behind the scenes and kind of attending so many of the different events? From an on-court perspective, that LED court, I had, when I first saw it, I was like, is this really going to work? And when I saw the the media unveil on, on Thursday and I walked on the court, I thought, you know, this could be pretty cool. And the way they executed that in the building – I was real impressed how they matched with the dunks and how they changed things up. Uh, someone asked one of the uh, people in charge if that's the future of basketball course, and he said, hold on, hold on just a little bit, maybe long, long time down the road, but it is something they can use to capture the attention. And I thought it added to All-Star Saturday night. And I did want to say that uh, some of the feedback after Saturday night that you saw from people watching on television, to me, did not match what I felt in the building. I thought that was a really good show. Again, I mean, the three-point contest, four people tied at 26. The skills challenge went to a tiebreaker. The slam dunk contest, it's going to get criticized every year because it's not Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins. But some of those dunks, if you just you know didn't know who was doing them, I would say they would compare somewhat favorably. So um, not, not to Michael Jordan, but to some of the other ones that people are nostalgic about. So I thought the Saturday show was really good, especially for those in the building. Maybe TNT, the broadcast didn't match what it was in the building. So that's probably my highlight. The other highlight, and this is a shout-out to many of the people listening, the number of Pacers fans that I saw just – I made the walk from Gamebridge Fieldhouse to cross over to Lucas Oil Stadium probably ten different times. And the amount of people that stopped and yelled, go Pacers, and were enthusiastic, and, and even just for me personally, you know, told me they appreciated our work. I, it made me feel good. And so shout-out to all the Pacers fans that, that were able to make – you know, one day of it, a weekend of it, whatever you were able to experience. But the Pacers fans, I thought, really, really showed out and showed up, and I felt their enthusiasm. And I can tell every time they said something like, go Pacers, they told me how excited they are for the next few months. And so I think it's going to be a fun finish to this season. Four home games out of the gate. It starts tomorrow night. JJ and company will have your coverage. She is Jeremiah Johnson, Valley Sports, again, beginning at 630 Tomorrow night, Pacers and Pistons and the sideshow of Matherin versus Ivy.
coming up tomorrow night inside of Gamebridge Fieldhouse. JJ, good running into you Sunday night. I promise no more dirty looks from the loft, uh, from the escalator down to the loft. Thanks for being a good sport. The wake-up call with KB and Andy <laughs> is thriving in February. How about the energy level right there? By the way, Zionsville or Cathedral last night? Ooh. Who won? Oh, yeah, the Cathedral won, yeah. Was it close? Um, first quarter, maybe a halftime. I think it was about an eight-point game. Ended up about twenty. Is uh, Hilton's? Wow. Does Hilton's kid start for Zionsville? Yep, yep. He starts. He's a, a good energy player. Um, but yeah, just uh, all Cathedral in that one. Well, I'll be watching the Zionsville product, Logan Imes tonight, Notre Dame and Louisville. If you want to come over, JJ, and watch that at the Bowen household, so you just let me know, okay? Okay, sounds good. It's the best of the best from today's broadcast lineup. Instant replay continues in a moment on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. This is Instant Replay. Previously on Query and Company. A guy that I think does as good a job covering college basketball as anybody that you're going to find, primarily in the Big East. And John Fanta, I want to begin by saying this. I have told you this before, but I'm going to repeat it, and there's a reason for it. To me, you are one of the best radio guests that we have because you have a very unique ability to be able to give really good information, but in a fashion that the listener feels like they've known you forever. And that's a unique skill set. But for that reason, I think people feel like this personal connection to you. And we were going to have you on a few weeks ago, and very understandably, you were not able to do so because your father had passed. And so I first want to offer on behalf of our listeners who feel like they know you, and those of us on this program are very uh, sincere condolences. And I can only imagine from your father's standpoint that you did what anybody would want to do, and that is you allowed your father to pass as a very proud individual of your accomplishments. So my condolences to you, and with that, thanks for the time today. Um, well, thank you so much, guys. Thank, thank you for saying that, um, and I appreciate that, the the ability to relate with people. That, that means a lot. You know, for me, uh, my dad taught me, I'm sure like a lot of your listeners, uh, we count on our fathers to teach us about work ethic and to teach us about doing the right thing. And, and both, you know, both my parents have taught me that, but, but my dad really, uh, he inspired me to pursue the passion that I have. And, uh, he said, you know, you, you want to carry that passion with you every single day. And you can control a couple of things in this world. There's a lot of things that are out of all of our control. Uh, you know, I wish, I wish my dad was still around right now, but we, we all don't control that. Uh, and, and I think for me, what I can control is living in his honor. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think the thing that comes to mind most is, is he said, you can do two things. You can, you can outwork people. You can put your head down and work as hard as possible. Uh, and the second thing is you can be a kind person to deal with, you know, and, uh, that, that's how I've always tried to carry out my business. And, and that's how I've always tried to do this gig. And, you know, I, I love college basketball. I love sports. I grew up in Cleveland and, uh, you, you grow up living, breathing, dying 
Cleveland sports there and then college basketball has become my forte. And I love the passion of it. I love the fans. That's why we do this. That's why you guys are on this show right now. We do it for the people that are listening and tuning in. We appreciate those people because without them, it wouldn't be as fun. And so I miss him, but uh, I know he wouldn't want me moping. People ask me every day, how you holding up? I say, I'm, 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 you know what? It's a new day. It's a new opportunity. And I know that sounds cliche, but my dad would be in my ear saying, Hey, don't sit tight and not do what you love during the best time of year. This is prime time in college basketball. It Get is, after man. It. You're right. That's what I'm doing for him. And your dad is like, listen, you got to go on Quarian Company and speak to all seven people that they've got listening to their program, right? I mean, so, John, we appreciate it. Hey. hey. He loves Casey and the Sunshine Band, so way to come out of break. Way to come out of break with See, that. See, I knew it. I knew that we were doing it all for – it was all coming together for us. John, I want to begin with this. I, I had mentioned this earlier, and I want your, your thoughts on this. John Fanta, who, of course, covers college basketball for Fox Sports and primarily in the Big East. We'll talk about Butler in a second. But to use, I guess, the Butler game last night with Villanova, we can look at that right now because we are closer to the tournament selection day and say – well, this is like a, a play-in game, or this is a make-or-break game. Do we put too much emphasis at this time of year on games in a vacuum? Does it really matter, or is it simply looked at in totality, or because of recency bias when the selection committee gets together, are these games more important than, say, if they were in early December? Yeah, I, I do think that they're more important, and I, I don't know if the committee would ever admit that, but let's face it. If I'm a committee member, I'm really watching every single night uh, all these bubble teams. I'm, I'm zoning in on them because we can go down the pathway of metrics all we want, and, and there are several pieces that they use there. You know, one of, the, one of the pet peeves I have this time of year, guys, is everybody's bringing up a team's net. All right, everybody's bringing up a team's net. The committee has never said, that the net is the number one determinant of whether or not they select a team. And it's not because if it was then a team like SMU with a top 35 net would be in the tournament. They're not even close to the NCAA tournament. So the, the thing is, and, and their net sits at 36 currently. Uh, the thing is this time of year does matter. Because you can't tell me the eye test isn't a part of this, right? The committee went to the Marquette-Butler game uh, last week. They saw Butler play live. You know, Butler's, Butler has an advantage. Purdue has an advantage. Indiana has an advantage. Because, you know why? The committee, when they meet in Indianapolis, they go to these games. They go in person. They watch these teams play. Uh, because the NCA offices are in Indianapolis. Of course, I guess it could be a yeah. disadvantage to some extent, John, right? If you completely stubbed <laughs> your toe because you can't kind of hide an anonymity. Anonymity is the That's wrong right. word, but you get what I'm saying, right? No, I, I do get what you're saying. But I, I, I do think these games matter more because here's the thing. If a team loses six of seven in December, right, versus a team losing six of seven this time of year, let's say around that December, everything else they did was pretty well, was was good enough to – good enough to, uh, to to make the, the tournament. If you lose six or seven this time of year and you were already sort of floating near the bubble, you're giving the committee an out. You're giving them an out. You're giving them an explanation. What you don't want to do in this, you don't want to give the committee a reason to keep you out because we often say they got to find 68 somehow. Yeah, but it starts with 362. It starts with 362 teams. Now, several of those teams 
are eliminated from tournament conversation before the season even starts. But at the end of the day, 19% of the teams that play in college basketball make the postseason, just less than one-fifth. If you give the committee a reason to keep you out, they'll be delighted to keep you out because it keeps them from getting all that negative feedback. So this time of year, if you are near the bubble, yes, one night can change your season. Just like in November or December, to a lesser extent, if you beat number one or if you beat a top five team, that result can carry unlimited mileage. John Fanta of Fox College Hoops is our guest. Tried to power through that, couldn't do it. <laughs> John, I went to the Butler Providence game a couple weeks ago. I've highlighted it a couple times here on Query and Company, and Butler looked great in the first half. And then the second half, they give up 40, but they close on an 11 to 1 run. They win that game. I feel pretty good about Butler's chances to make the tournament. And now it's three straight losses against good competition, but three straight losses, to your point, all the same at the wrong time of year for that to happen. And they've had second half struggles. They've had key pieces that have, like Posh Alexander, that have struggled for them offensively. And now where they stand, whether they're outside looking in or they're still one of those last four in spots, they go Seton Hall on the road, at home St. John's, away at DePaul, home against Xavier. From my perspective, I know neither of us are committee members, but you follow the Big East better than anybody. From my perspective, if they win out, I think they're probably in. I think they don't need to make noise in the Big East tournament. If they drop one, I feel like then you're asking them to do something they historically have not done the last decade, which is do well in that tournament. Do you see it the same way, or am I oversimplifying Butler's situation? No, you're not oversimplifying. You know why? I have evidence to prove it. Only one Big East team in the history of the league, old, new, whatever, has missed the NCAA tournament with at least 20 wins. It was John Beeline's West Virginia team. This is years ago. In other words, if Butler gets four more wins, they're going to be at 20 and 11. They will be, they will have road wins over Marquette and Creighton. They will have a road win over fellow bubble team, Seton Hall. They will be in. They will be in. But this Saturday night game at Seton Hall is a massive game. I think it's a must-win game for Butler. I don't think you can allow yourself to lose five of six games this time of year. That's, that's what we call danger time. That's serious danger time. And here's the other reason why. After this game at Seton Hall, is there a move-the-needle resume opportunity? The answer to that question is no. Home St. John's, not a great win. St. John's has fallen off the map. At DePaul, you'd be better off sending DePaul a check and not even going over to Chicago. They'd probably <laughs> take the money to help pay for their new coach because uh, they, they're they're so bad. It's it's you're you know it's just not a it's not a positive experience to have to go and play them. You gain nothing from the game. Just stay healthy. Knock on wood. Then home Xavier. The fact is Xavier's fallen off the tournament map. So for Butler's resume. This game at Seton Hall is huge. If they can couple a win at Seton Hall with, with wins after that, they're going to make it. They're going to take momentum in the Big East tournament. They're going to make it. The issue is, tell you what, that game Saturday is tough. Seton Hall's going to have a lower bowl sellout. They've had a very nice year, guys. I mean, Shaheen Holloway deserves an immense amount of credit, the fact he's got this team competitive. They're like Butler. They have their NIL constraints, They they meaning they – they don't have a lot of money to pay players, but they've got five quad one wins. They beat UConn, and they're eleven and three at home on the season. So Butler has their hands full Saturday night. They got to be ready for Kadari Richmond.
John Fanta is our guest, college basketball writer, television, everything for Fox, as well as, you know, primarily the Big East. John, we were talking about this earlier. I want to run this past you because you're a college basketball guru. You ready? Now, I need you to, to think outside the box here for a second. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay, great. So, so here's what we decided. Kalamazoo, Michigan, apparently has built a $300 million arena, and it's on Cooley Street, which is that alone is, is cool enough. But we've decided that the, the NCAA tournament, people love it. They love Selection Sunday. They love hearing you talk about it. They love hearing about breaking down like quads and the whole deal, right? And so I think we get, we're not focusing enough on the greatness that is Detroit and Coppin State with DePaul hanging around as the worst teams amongst all of them in Division One. So in Kalamazoo, Michigan, I think we should have what we call the suck play-in game where the two teams with the worst record in college basketball play and then the winner has to go directly to Dayton and play the lowest 16 seed with the winner of that game getting to play into the play-in game to then try to go on. Your thoughts? (laughs) I love it. Yes, yes, I knew you would, John. I knew you would. Right? Let's go. Let's make this happen. Let's make this happen. <laughs> yes. So wait, so okay, so so who's playing who? No, here's what I think. Okay, right now, and this is and yeah, John, yeah. this is this is what makes it beautiful. We need because we focus so much on, you know, Butler and Villanova and the importance of that game or Creighton and Yukon, which we haven't even talked about yet, and like Yukon and Purdue battling for the number one seed overall and Houston's right there. I mean, I get it, right? But we need to focus on the fact that there's a, another race in play here. And that is that you have one win Detroit Mercy and two win Coppin State with three win right. DePaul hanging around. De- DePaul is thinking to themselves, guys, we just need a couple of these teams to win a couple of games and we've got a chance to be the worst, right? I mean, that's what you want. So you go to Kalamazoo, you play in this right. new arena in Kalamazoo, and then you have the chance to represent the worst, the worst of the worst, right? Maybe you even just send the loser of the game into the tournament. Just to make it fun. Because can you imagine yeah. if Mike Davis goes well, man, on a run? It's like old school American Idol. I think there was one audition that was so bad. <laughs> yes. Randy, Randy Jackson and Paul Abdul said, you know what? Put him through. Yeah. We, we want – this is what we're doing. Like Detroit Mercy, who's going to be the William Hung of the NCAA tournament? That's what we're looking for, right? Let's right. go. I think that's it. Yeah, well, exactly. Who's going to be <laughs> – William Hung of the NC. Yes. I never thought those words would be said, <laughs> but I love it. I mean, look, you know, there's those there's those um, social media accounts, sickos, college football and basketball, like the worst of the worst in the sport. And uh, I'll tell you what, I mean, as much as there's some great teams in this sport, there are some god awful ones. So the the crazy thing about it is, I would I would watch Cop and State play Detroit Mercy. Just give me a bag of popcorn and a Miller Lite, and I'm all set. <laughs> or a case of it, right? Hey, John. Right, um, or maybe a case of it, exactly. Listen, Connecticut, back to, to the reality here. Uh, you know, we know that Purdue was tabbed as the number one overall seed. Then they stubbed their toe at Ohio State. And Connecticut looked like an absolute juggernaut. They get beat. I think that we in Indiana focus on this jockeying back and forth between Connecticut and Purdue, who could be the number one overall seed in the tournament. I think both are safe as number one seeds for now. But how close is Houston? Is there really that much of a gap between Houston uh, and then Connecticut-Purdue? Well, uh, I, I think I think Connecticut is is the best team in the country that came off of an emotional dominant win over Marquette and 
the other team last night in Omaha, Nebraska, plays in one of the best home court atmospheres in the sport, but hit 14 threes. They had their night, and they were they were ready for revenge, and they got them. They got them. Uh, but you've won 14 in a row. You know, I was starting to, to wonder, when was UConn going to lose again? And now, not is it bad, but, like, it was feeling like Big East play was getting a little bit stale, gentlemen. Like, I was wait, waiting for somebody to blink. Um, so, here's the deal. Uh, I, I, think, I think Houston is better than Purdue, okay? And I'm a little bit contrarian. Uh, I, I think Purdue is a, a, a really, really good team. Could be a great team. Uh, they're, they're a great team. They could be a national championship team. But Sunday concerns me because I want to buy fully in. I'm at the register right now, and I want to tell you that I'm all in on Purdue to win it all. But, you know, you lost to an Ohio, UConn lost to a Creighton team that's top 15 in the country, right? Purdue lost to a team that had lost nine of its last 11 games and was well, well off the map. I know they get the emotional boost from a coaching change, so you're going to play with pride. But opponent aside, you know, what, what this comes down to back for me is, like Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith, they've got to be that dynamic duo. Game in and game out. Game in and game out. This team's got some other pieces with Lance Jones and Drake Hoffman, Wren. But in this loss to Ohio State, Fletcher Lawyer went one for seven from the floor. He and Lance Jones combined to go four for 18. And Purdue went three of nine from three. A team that they're so potent from the three-point arc. And they're able to, to, to make threes at a, at a high rate. They've done that this season. But as much as you can live by that, you also can die by it. And I think what you're going to see teams do in the tournament is they're going to sit here and say, you know what? We will let the best player in the country do his thing. You're not going to stop Zach Eady. He's Godzilla on the interior. He's unstoppable. But what you can do is you can sit here and say, we're just going to make an extremely conscious effort of taking away the three-point line from Purdue. Now, what's interesting is last night, Creighton held Connecticut to three for 16 from deep. And what happened? Connecticut got their doors blown off. Because Creighton fought through screens, they went over on screens, and they said, we're not letting UConn's guards beat us. That type of formula, it, it's interesting because, like Edie, Klingon's in there for UConn, but then they space around him. And it's hard, but the right teams, if they've got the length and the versatility defensively, they could be disruptive, they can create turnovers. What's the other issue if you take Purdue's three-point ability away? Edie is a willing passer, guys. He had the three assists against Ohio State. He also had six turnovers. Now, that's an outlier performance, but it's illustrative of the defensive approach that Ohio State took. Ohio State said we're cutting off threes. Because if you give Purdue with a seven foot four, 300-pound monster eight or nine threes, they're not going to lose. They're not going to lose. Uh, so that's my concern with the Boilers and why I, I, I actually don't have them one or two today. Could they move? Could Of course, they could be back to number one in no time. Uh, but I think it's also illustrative of college basketball in general. What makes this sport great is this year is that there's a, a, a ton of parity. There's, there's so, so much parity across the board. 
But there also is an echelon of teams at the top that I think I'd be surprised if they if they lose early. That's the interest factor. And I'll tell you this. There has never been a situation where we've been watching a one versus 16 game to the degree that we'll all be watching Purdue in their first NCAA tournament game back on the big dance floor. But right now, UConn is, is still my best team. Do I think they'll be ranked number one on Monday? No, I am a believer in if they lose, it's a results-based thing when you make rankings. I had some people say, well, I'm not moving Purdue at all. Well, like you have to, you have to account for teams' wins and losses. What you think a team's resume is and their seeding is in the NCAA tournament isn't necessarily where you have them ranked in your top 15 or top 25 ranking system. Right now, you know, Purdue would be about three for me, uh, but I, I give a slight, you know, I give a lot of credit to Houston, who's having a sensational year, guys, and they're in year one in the Big 12. I was going to say, in a new league, league, right? You know it? Yeah. They've, they, they've handled the transition with ease. College Hoops broadcaster and reporter for Fox Sports, John Fanta, is our guest. John, you host a Field of 68 podcast where you cover the bracket in every angle you could possibly imagine and sometimes even have those reactionary ones after a big Tuesday night, your late night edition that you had last night. Sticking with Purdue, I would argue, A, no college fan base in the country is going to be upset that the debate that's happening is, oh, which one seed are we going to be? Like That's a great problem right. to have for Purdue basketball. Right. And you're right, there is a sense of the ghosts of tournaments past, most notably FDU last year. Mathematically speaking, you're right. We're going to watch that game intently. It's near impossible for Purdue to lose to a 16 again. That's not the game I'm worried about. Maybe Purdue <laughs> fans are. I'm worried about, depending on the draw, where they move along. That said... When you look at Purdue, the landscape of college basketball, you just outlined where there's an upper echelon clearly, but it's also a wide open tournament this year, it feels like as well. Is Purdue more in danger of matchup problems in the final four or like making it because they're the best team clearly in their region? Or are they more worried about matchup problems like you saw Creighton UConn last night where it's a team that defensively is going to be as aggressive to take away the three-pointer, mm-hmm. and perhaps they're just a better team that night? I think it's a ladder. I really do. Uh, I actually think that, that that for Purdue, if they get on that run, right, and they get to a Final Four, uh, I there's a world where I, I'm sitting here saying, I think they're my front-runner to win the national championship. You know why? For them, getting to the Final Four could be harder than the Final Four itself. And you might be saying, How? Are you crazy? They're going to face even better teams in the final four. But you know what? Purdue, here's the thing, guys. Purdue faced all these heavyweights this year. It's nothing new for them to play against an elite team. They went to the Maui. They won the Maui. They beat Tennessee. They beat Gonzaga, who's on the bubble now. But they, they beat Marquette. They right? beat Arizona. They yeah. beat Arizona. Yeah. They beat Arizona. They beat Alabama, who's in first place the SEC. I'm not worried about Purdue if they get to the final four. Uh, by that point, I'll be impressed that they made it, that they broke through, that they did it. All, the, the pressure on them is getting there. No question. It's uh, John, getting there. I, they've got to have the voices the in their head, four. right? What's that? They've got the thing The thing that, to me, I mean, to your point, the, the thing, when you look at Purdue, let's say Purdue, Connecticut, Houston, and we'll throw Tennessee in there, right? The one thing that Purdue has that those teams don't is – the whispers in their ear and the echoes yeah. of North Texas and Little Rock, even though that wasn't this group, and then certainly Fairleigh Dickinson. Once you get past, you break through that first barrier, then it's like, 
a weight off their shoulders, seemingly. And I think they're going to have an 8-9 matchup against an athletic team, perhaps, that could give them fits. But they get past that. They make it into weekend two. To me, they've gone, They've got, They've made it through the hard part. I could not agree more with you. Yeah, I think that's it. It's, it's a psychological thing early in the tournament. You're right. If I'm an 8 or 9, let's face it, the 8 or 9 who sees Purdue as the one in their bracket is going to start clapping. Purdue's got to use that to their advantage. They got to come out and show you, you don't want to play us. I liken it to 2015, 16 Villanova guys. So going into that tournament, we were like, well, this Villanova team, they've got it. Like they, they could make the final four. They beat UNC Asheville in their first game. They blew out Iowa in their second game. Then they play Miami and we're kind of walking in saying, well, Miami's really athletic. They're quick. They can, nope. Uh, Villanova blew them out. They beat them by 23. Then you get to the Elite Eight game, and they play Kansas. And and what was the narrative going into the game? The narrative going into the game was they can't do it. Villanova can never break through in this spot. This is not Jay Wright's thing. That was the mental hurdle that they had to battle. They beat Kansas. It was almost as if once they got to the Final Four, I remember being in the press room, and the whole thing was, well, you know, they finally did it. They got here. And it was like everything was off their back. That's what I feel like with Purdue. What, if they get to the final four for this program, I'm not saying you're not trying to win a national championship. That's not my argument at all. But when you haven't been to a final four since 1980, that will shed off the weight of that history. So that if you're then in the final four, at that point, you're just, you're, you're on the ride of a lifetime and you're playing. It's early in the tournament when every narrative is going to be, they can't do it. They can't do it. They can't do it. Like it was with Virginia in 2019, that they're going to have to fight it. Cause once you get to the final four, all the narratives of you can't, or all the stuff that's negative, when you get the four teams, you're not talking about their flaws. You're talking about all their strengths and this team, if they get there, will be ready for that. I totally feel that. He's John Fanta, covers college basketball for Fox, and you can also hear him commentary on the Field of 68 podcast all throughout March. And next year, going to join us in Kalamazoo. Exactly. He'll be there with us Week in Kalamazoo. Yeah. John, I appreciate you making time for us as always. And as Jake mentioned, there's a lot of people, myself included, that can relate to losing a parent. Our condolences to you. And as you mentioned, like your dad would tell you, enjoy this. Enjoy every moment. And continue to make your family proud as we are at the best time of year, the countdown to March Madness. Thank you guys. God bless you. I really appreciate the well wishes and hope to talk with you guys soon enough. Sounds good. John Fanta. Always appreciate, uh, appreciate it from Fox sports. Thanks again for listening to instant replay because second helpings are always best when the main course is still fresh. Instant replay on 93.5 and 107.5 the fan.